0: story fifteen of christmas stories by charles dickens this librivox recording is in the public domain story fifteen somebody's luggage part One. chapter i his leaving it till called for the writer of these humble lines being a waiter and having come of a family of waiters and owning at the present time five brothers who are all waiters and likewise an only sister who is a waitress would wish to offer a few words respecting his calling first having the pleasure of hereby in a friendly manner offering the dedication of the same unto joseph much respected head waiter at the slam-jam coffee-house london e c than which an individual more eminently deserving of the name of man or a more amenable honour to his own head and heart whether considered in the light of a waiter or regarded as a human being do not exist in case confusion should arise in the public mind which it is open to confusion on many subjects respecting what is meant or implied by the term waiter the present humble lines would wish to offer an explanation it may not be generally known that the person as goes out to wait is not a waiter it may not be generally known that the hand as is called in extra at the freemason's tavern or the london or the albion or otherwise is not a waiter such hands may be took on for public dinners by the bushel and you may know them by their breathing with difficulty when in attendance and taking away the bottle ere yet it is half out but such are not waiters for you cannot lay down the tailoring or the shoemaking or the brokering or the greengrocering or the pictorial periodicaling or the second-hand wardrobe or the small fancy businesses you cannot lay down those lines of life at your will and pleasure by the half-day or evening and take up waitering you may suppose you can but you cannot or you may go so far as to say you do but you do not nor yet can you lay down the gentleman's service when stimulated by prolonged incompatibility on the part of cooks and here it may be remarked that cooking and incompatibility will be mostly found united and take up waitering it has been ascertained that what a gentleman will sit meek under at home he will not bear out of doors at the slam-jam or any similar establishment then what is the inference to be drawn respecting true waitering you must be bred to it you must be born to it would you know how born to it fair reader if of the adorable female sex then learn from the biographical experience of one that is a waiter in the sixty-first year of his age you were conveyed ere yet your dawning powers were otherwise developed than to harbour vacancy in your inside you were conveyed by surreptitious means into a pantry adjoining the admiral nelson civic and general dining-rooms there to receive by stealth that healthful sustenance which is the pride and boast of the british female constitution your mother was married to your father himself a distant waiter in the profoundest secrecy for a waitress known to be married would ruin the best of businesses it is the same as on the stage hence your being smuggled into the pantry and that to add to the infliction by an unwilling grandmother under the combined influence of the smells of roast and boiled and soup and gas and malt liquors you partook of your earliest nourishment your unwilling grandmother sitting prepared to catch you when your mother was called and dropped you your grandmother's shawl ever ready to stifle your natural complainings your innocent mind surrounded by uncongenial cruets dirty plates dish-covers and cold gravy your mother calling down the pipe for veals and porks instead of soothing you with nursery rhymes under these untoward circumstances you were early weaned your unwilling grandmother ever growing more unwilling as your food assimilated less then contracted habits of shaking you till your system curdled and your food would not assimilate at all at length she was no longer spared and could have been thankfully spared much sooner when your brothers began to appear in succession your mother retired left off her smart dressing she had previously been a smart dresser and her dark ringlets which had previously been flowing and haunted your father late of nights lying in wait for him through all weathers up the shabby court which led to the back door of the royal old dustbin said to have been so named by george the fourth where your father was head but the dust-bin was going down then and your father t- took but little excepting from a liquid point of view your mother's object in these visits was of a housekeeping character and you was set on to whistle your father out sometimes he came out but generally not come or not come however all that part of his existence which was unconnected with open waitering was kept a close secret and was acknowledged by your mother to be a close secret and you and your mother flittered about the court close secrets both of you and would scarcely have confessed under torture that you knew your father or that your father had any name than dick which wasn't his name though he was never known by any other or that he had kith or kin, or chick or child. Perhaps the attraction of this mystery, combined with your father's having a damp compartment to himself behind a leaky cistern at the dustbin, a sort of a cellar compartment with a sink in it, and a smell, and a plate rack, and a bottle rack, and three windows that didn't match each other or anything else, and no daylight caused your young mind to feel convinced that you must grow up to be a waiter too but you did feel convinced of it and so did all your brothers down to your sister every one of you felt convinced that you was born to the waitering at this stage of your career what was your feelings one day when your father came home to your mother in open broad daylight of itself an act of madness on the part of a waiter and took to his bed leastways your mother and family's bed with the statement that his eyes were devilled kidneys physicians being in vain your father expired after repeating at intervals for a day and a night when gleams of reason and old business fitfully illuminated his being two and two is five and three is sixpence interred in the parochial department of the neighbouring churchyard and accompanied to the grave by as many waiters of long standing as could spare the morning time from their soiled glasses namely one your bereaved form was attired in a white neckinger and you was took on from motives of benevolence at the georgian gridiron theatrical and supper here supporting nature on what you found in the plates which was as it happened and but too often thoughtlessly immersed in mustard and on what you found in the glasses which rarely went beyond driblets and lemon by night you dropped asleep standing till you was cuffed awake and by day was set to polishing every individual article in the coffee-room your couch being sawdust your counterpane being ashes of cigars here frequently hiding a heavy heart under the smart tie of your white neckinger or correctly speaking lower down and more to the left you picked up the rudiments of knowledge from an extra by the name of bishop's and by calling plate-washer and gradually elevating your mind with chalk on the back of the corner-box partition until such time as you used the inkstand when it was out of hand attained to manhood and to be the waiter that you find yourself i could wish here to offer a few respectful words on behalf of the calling so long the calling of myself and family and the public interest in which is but too often very limited you are not generally understood no we are not allowance enough is not made for us for say that we ever show a little drooping listlessness of spirits or what might be termed indifference or apathy Put it to yourself, what would your own state of mind be, if you was one of an enormous family, every member of which except you was always greedy and in a hurry? Put it to yourself that you was generally replete with animal food at the slack hours of one in the day and again at nine p.m., and that the repleter you was, the more voracious all your fellow-creatures came in, put it to yourself that it was your business when your digestion was well on to take a personal interest and sympathy in a hundred gentlemen fresh and fresh say for the sake of argument only a hundred whose imaginations was given up to grease and fat and gravy and melted butter and abandoned to questioning you about cuts of this and dishes of that each of em going on as if him and you and the bill of fare was alone in the world then look what you are expected to know you are never out but they seem to think you regularly attend everywhere what's this christopher that i hear about the smashed excursion train how are they doing at the italian opera christopher christopher what are the real particulars of this business at the yorkshire bank similarly a ministry gives me more trouble than it gives the queen as to lord palmerston the constant and wearing connection into which i have been brought with his lordship during the last few years is deserving of a pension then look at the hypocrites we are made and the lies white i hope that are forced upon us why must a sedentary pursuited waiter be considered to be a judge of horse-flesh and to have a most tremendous interest in horse-training and racing yet it would be half of our little incomes out of our pockets if we didn't take on to have these sporting tastes it is the same inconceivable why with farming shooting equally so i am sure that no regular as the months of august september and october come around i am ashamed of myself in my own private bosom for the way in which i make believe to care whether or not the grouse is strong on the wing much their wings or drumsticks either signifies to me uncooked and whether the partridges is, is plentiful among the turnips and whether the pheasants is shy or bold or anything else you wish to mention yet you may see me or any other waiter of my standing holding on by the back of the box and leaning over a gentleman with his purse out and his bill before him discussing these points in a confidential tone of voice as if my happiness in life entirely depended on em I have mentioned our little incomes look at the most unreasonable point of all and the point on which the greatest injustice is done us whether it is owing to our always carrying so much change in our right-hand trouser pocket and so many halfpence in our coat-tails or whether it is human nature which i were loath to believe what is meant by the everlasting fable that head-waiters is rich how did that fable get into circulation who first put it about and what are the facts to establish the unblushing statement come forth thou slanderer and refer the public to the waiter's will in doctor's common supporting thy malignant hiss yet this is so commonly dwelt upon especially by the screws who give waiters the least that denial is vain and we are obliged for our credit's sake to carry our heads as if we were going into a business when of the two we are much more likely to go into a union there was formerly a screw as frequented the slam-jam ere yet the present writer had quitted that establishment on a question of teeing his assistant staff out of his own pocket which screw carried the taunt to its bitterest height never soaring above threepence and as often as not grovelling on the earth a penny lower he yet represented the present writer as a large holder of consols a lender of money on mortgages a capitalist he has been overheard to dilate to other customers on the allegation that the present writer put out thousands of pounds at interest in distilleries and breweries well christopher he would say having grovelled his lowest on the earth half a moment before looking out for a house to open eh huh? can't find a business to be disposed of on a scale as is up to your resources um to such a dizzy precipice of falsehood has this misrepresentation taken wing that the well-known and highly respected old charles long eminent at the west country hotel and by some considered the father of the waitering found himself under the obligation to fall into it through so many years that his own wife for he had an unbeknown old lady in that capacity towards himself believed it and what was the consequence when he was borne to his grave on the shoulders of six picked waiters with six more for change six more acting as pallbearers, all keeping step in a pouring shower without a dry eye visible and a concourse only inferior to royalty his pantry and lodgings were equally ransacked high and low for property and none was found how could it be found when beyond his last monthly collection of walking-sticks umbrellas and pocket-handkerchiefs which happened to have been not yet disposed of though he had ever been through life punctual in clearing off his collections by the month there was no property existing such, however, is the force of this universal libel, that the widow of old Charles, at the present hour an inmate of the almshouses of the Cork Cutters Company in Blue Anchor Road, identified sitting at the door of one of them in a clean cap and a Windsor armchair only last Monday, expects John's hoarded wealth to be found hourly nay ere yet he had succumbed to the grisly dart and when his portrait was painted in oils life-size by subscription of the frequenters of the west country to hang over the coffee-room chimney-piece there were not wanting those who contended that what is termed the accessories of such a portrait ought to be the bank of england out of window and a strong box on the table and but for better-regulated minds contending for a bottle and screw and the attitude of drawing and carrying their point it would have been so handed down to posterity i am now brought to the title of the present remarks having i hope without offence to any quarter offered such observations as i felt it my duty to offer in a free country which has ever dominated the seas on the general subject i will now proceed to wait on the particular question at a momentous period of my life when i was off so far as concerned notice given with a house that shall be nameless for the question on which i took my departing stand was a fixed charge for waiters and no house as commits itself to that eminently un-english act of more than foolishness and baseness shall be advertised by me i repeat at a momentous crisis when i was off with a house too mean for mention and not yet on with that to which i have ever since had the honour of being attached in the capacity of head i was casting about what to do next then it were that proposals were made to me on behalf of my present establishment. Stipulations were necessary on my part, emendations were necessary on my part, in the end ratifications ensued on both sides, and I entered on a new career. We are a bed business and a coffee-room business. We are not a general dining business, nor do we wish it in consequence when diners drop in we know what to give em as will keep em away another time we are a private room or family business also but coffee-room principal me and the directory and the writing material and sitterer occupy a place to ourselves a place fended off up a step or two at the end of the coffee-room in what i call the good old-fashioned style the good old-fashioned style is that whatever you want down to a wafer you must be only and solely dependent on the head waiter for you must put yourself a new-born child into his hands there is no other way in which a business untinged with continental vice can be conducted it were bootless to add that if languages is required to be jabbered and english is not good enough both families and gentlemen had better go somewhere else when i began to settle down on this right principled and well conducted house i noticed under the bed in number twenty four b which it is up a angle off the staircase and usually put off on the lowly minded a heap of things in a corner I asked our head chambermaid in the course of the day, what are them things in 24B? To which she answered with a careless air, somebody's luggage. Regarding her with a eye not free from severity, I says, whose luggage? Evading my eye, she replied, lor, how should I know? Being it may be right to mention a female of some pertness, though acquainted with her business. A head-waiter must be either head or tail. He must be at one extremity or the other of the social scale. He cannot be at the waist of it or anywhere else but the extremities. It is for him to decide which of the extremities. On the eventful occasion under consideration, I give Mrs. Pratchett so distinctly to understand my decision that I broke her spirit as towards myself, then and there, and for good let not inconsistency be suspected on account of my mentioning mrs pratchett as mrs and having formerly remarked that a waitress must not be married readers are respectfully requested to notice that mrs pratchett is not a waitress but a chambermaid now a chambermaid may be married if head generally is married or says so it comes to the same thing as expressing what is customary N.B. Mr. Pratchett is in Australia, and his address there is The Bush. Having took Mrs. Pratchett down as many pegs as was essential to the future happiness of all parties, I requested her to explain herself. For instance, I says, to give her a little encouragement, who is somebody? I give you my sacred honour, Mr. Christopher, answered Pratchett, that I haven't the faintest notion.' but for the manner in which she settled her cap-strings, I should have doubted this, but in respect of positiveness it was hardly to be discriminated from an affidavit. "'Then you never saw him?' I followed her up with. "'Nor yet,' said Mrs. Pratchett, shutting her eyes, and making as if she had just took a pill of unusual circumference, which gave a remarkable force to her denial, "'nor yet any servant in this house,' All have been changed, Mr. Christopher, within five year, and somebody left his luggage here before then. Inquiry of Miss Martin yielded, in the language of the bard of A-1, confirmation strong. So it had really and truly happened. Miss Martin is the young lady at the bar as makes out our bills, and, though higher than I could wish considering her station, is perfectly well behaved.' Farther investigation led to the disclosure that there was a bill against this luggage to the amount of two sixteen six. The luggage had been lying under the bedstead of twenty four B over six years. The bedstead is a four poster with a deal of old hanging and valance, and is, as I once said, probably connected with more than twenty four B's, which I remember my hearer was pleased to laugh at at the time. I don't know why when do we know why but this luggage laid heavy on my mind i fell a wondering about somebody and what he had got and been up to i couldn't satisfy my thoughts why he should leave so much luggage against so small a bill for i had the luggage out within a day or two and turned it over and the following were the items a black portmanteau a black bag a desk a dressing-case a brown paper parcel a hat-box and an umbrella strapped to a walking-stick. It was all very dusty and fluey. I had our porter up to get under the bed and fetch it out, and though he habitually wallows in dust, swims in it from morning to night, and wears a close-fitting waistcoat with black calamanco sleeves for the purpose, it made him sneeze again, and his throat was that hot with it that it was obliged to be cooled with a drink of Alsapi's draught the luggage so got the better of me that instead of having it put back when it was well dusted and washed with a wet cloth previous to which it was so covered with feathers that you might have thought it was turning into poultry and would by and by begin to lay i say instead of having it put back i had it carried into one of my places downstairs there from time to time i stared at it and stared at it until it seemed to grow big and grow little and came forward at me and retreat again and go through all manner of performances resembling intoxication when this had lasted weeks i may say months and not be far out i one day thought of asking miss martin for the particulars of the two sixteen six total she was so obliging as to extract it from the books it dating before her time and here follows a true copy reader's note here follows an extensive list of charges End note memorandum july first eighteen fifty seven he went out after dinner directing luggage to be ready when he called for it never called so far from throwing a light upon the subject this bill appeared to me if i may so express my doubts to involve it in a yet more lurid halo speculating it over with the mistress she informed me that the luggage had been advertised in the master's time as being to be sold after such and such a day to pay expenses but no farther steps had been taken i may here remark that the mistress is a widow in her fourth year the master was possessed of one of those unfortunate constitutions in which spirits turns to water and rises in the ill-starred victim my speculating it over not then only but repeatedly sometimes with the mistress sometimes with one sometimes with another led up to the mistress's saying to me whether at first in joke or in earnest or half joke and half earnest it matters not christopher i am going to make you a handsome offer if this should meet her eye, a lovely blue, may she not take it ill my mentioning that if I had been eight or ten years younger I would have done as much by her, that is, I would have made her a offer. It is for others than me to denominate it a handsome one. Christopher, I am going to make you a handsome offer. Put a name to it, ma'am. Look here, Christopher, run over the articles of somebody's luggage. You've got it all by heart, I know.' a black portmanteau ma'am a black bag a desk a dressing-case a brown paper parcel a hat-box and an umbrella strapped to a walking-stick all just as they were left nothing opened nothing tampered with you are right ma'am all locked but the brown paper parcel and that sealed the mistress was leaning on Miss Martin's desk at the bar window, and she taps the open book that lays upon the desk. She has a pretty-made hand, to be sure, and bobs her head over it and laughs. "'Come,' says she, Christopher, pay me somebody's bill, and you shall have somebody's luggage. I rather took to the idea from the first moment, but it mayn't be worth the money,' I objected, seeming to hold back that's a lottery says the mistress folding her arms upon the book it ain't her hands alone that's pretty made the observation extends right up her arms won't you venture two pounds sixteen shillings and sixpence in the lottery why there's no blanks says the mistress laughing and bobbing her head again you must win if you lose you must win all prizes in this lottery draw a blank and remember gentlemen sportsmen you'll still be entitled to a black portmanteau a black bag a desk a dressing-case a sheet of brown paper a hat-box and an umbrella strapped to a walking-stick to make short of it, Miss Martin come round me, and Mrs. Pratchett come round me, and the mistress, she was completely round me already, and all the women in the house come round me, and if it had been sixteen-two instead of two-sixteen, I should have thought myself well out of it, for what can you do when they do come round you? So I paid the money, down, and such a laughing as there was among them, but I turned the tables on em regularly when I said— my family name is Bluebeard. I'm going to open somebody's luggage all alone in the secret chamber, and not a female eye catches sight of the contents. Whether I thought proper to have the firmness to keep to this don't signify, or whether any female eye, and if any, how many, was really present when the opening of the luggage came off. Somebody's luggage is the question at present, nobody's eyes, nor yet noses what i still look at most in connection with that luggage is the extraordinary quantity of writing paper and all written on and not our paper neither not the paper charged in the bill for we know our paper so he must have been always at it and he had crumpled up this writing of his everywhere in every part and parcel of his luggage there was writing in his dressing-case writing in his boots writing among his shaving-tackle writing in his hat-box writing folded away down among the very whalebones of his umbrella his clothes wasn't bad what there was of em his dressing-case was poor not a particle of silver stopper bottle apertures with nothing in them, like empty little dog kennels and a most searching description of tooth-powder diffusing itself around as under a deluded mistake that all the chinks in the fittings was divisions in teeth his clothes i parted with well enough to a second-hand dealer not far from st clement dane's in the strand him as the officers in the army mostly dispose of their uniforms to when hard pressed with debts of honour if i may judge from their coats and epaulets diversifying the window with their backs towards the public the same party bought in one lot the portmanteau the bag the desk the dressing-case the hat-box the umbrella strap and walking-stick on my remarking that i should have thought those articles not quite in his line he said no more ith a manth grandmother mither christopher but if any man will bring hith grandmother here and offer her at a fair trifle below what thee feth with good luck when thief uncoured and turned i'll buy her these transactions brought me home and indeed more than home for they left a goodish profit on the original investment and now there remained the writings and the writings i particularly wish to bring under the candid attention of the reader i wish to do so without postponement for this reason this is to say namely viz i e as follows thus before i proceed to recount the mental sufferings of which i became the prey in consequence of the writings and before following up that harrowing tale with a statement of the wonderful and impressive catastrophe as thrilling in its nature as unlooked for in any other capacity which crowned the old and filled the cup of unexpectedness to overflowing the writings themselves ought to stand forth to view therefore it is that they now come next one word to introduce them and i lay down my pen i hope my unassuming pen until i take it up to trace the gloomy sequel of a mind with something on it he was a smeary writer and wrote a dreadful bad hand Utterly regardless of ink, he lavished it on every undeserving object on his clothes, his desk, his hat, the handle of his toothbrush, his umbrella. Ink was found freely on the coffee-room carpet by number four table, and two blots was on his restless couch. A reference to the document i have given entire will show that on the morning of the third of february eighteen fifty six he procured his no less than fifth pen and paper to whatever deplorable act of ungovernable composition he immolated those materials obtained from the bar there is no doubt that the fatal deed was committed in bed and that it left its evidences but too plainly long afterwards upon the pillowcase he had put no heading to any of his writings alas was he likely to have a heading without a head and where was his head when he took such things into it in some cases such as his boots he would appear to have hid the writings thereby involving his style in greater obscurity but his boots was at least pairs and no two of his writings can put in any claim to be so regarded here follows not to give more specimens what was found in chapter two his boots ah well then monsieur Michel, what do i know what can i say i assure you that he calls himself monsieur the englishman pardon but i think it is impossible said monsieur mutuel a spectacled snuffy stooping old gentleman in carpet shoes and a cloth cap with a peaked shade a loose blue frock coat reaching to his heels a large limp white shirt frill and cravat to correspond that is to say white was the natural colour of his linen on sundays but it toned down with the week it is repeated monsieur mutuel his amiable old walnut-shell countenance very walnut shelly indeed as he smiled and blinked in the bright morning sunlight it is my cherished madame bouclet i think impossible Eh, with a little vexed cry and a great many tosses of her head but it is not impossible that you are a pig retorted madame bouclet a compact little woman of thirty-five or so see then look there read on the second floor monsieur l'anglais is it not so it is so said monsieur mutuel good continue your morning walk get out madame bouclet dismissed him with a lively snap of her fingers the morning walk of monsieur mutuel was in the brightest patch that the sun made in the grande place of a dull old fortified french town the manner of his morning walk was with his hands crossed behind him an umbrella in figure the express image of himself always in one hand a snuff-box in the other thus with the shuffling gait of the elephant who really does deal with the very worst trouser-maker employed by the zoological world, and who appears to have recommended him to Monsieur Mutuel, the old gentleman sunned himself daily when some was to be had, of course at the same time sunning a red ribbon in his buttonhole, for was he not an ancient Frenchman? Being told by one of the angelic sects to continue his morning walk and get out, Monsieur Mutuel laughed a walnut-shell laugh, pulled off his cap at arm's length with the hand that contained his snuff-box, kept it off for a considerable period after he had parted from Madame Bouclet, and continued his morning walk and got out like a man of gallantry as he was the documentary evidence to which madame bouclet had referred monsieur mutuel was the list of her lodgers sweetly written forth by her own nephew and bookkeeper who held the pen of an angel and closed up at the side of her gateway for the information of the police au second monsieur l'anglais Proprietier on the second floor monsieur the englishman man of property so it stood nothing could be plainer madame bouclet now traced the line with her forefinger as it were to confirm and settle herself in her parting snap at monsieur mutuel and so placing her right hand on her hip with a defiant air as if nothing should ever tempt her to unsnap that snap strolled out into the place to glance up at the windows of monsieur the englishman that worthy happening to be looking out the window at the moment madame bouclet gave him a graceful salutation with her head looked to the right and looked to the left to account to him for her being there considered for a moment like one who accounted to herself for somebody she had expected not being there and re-entered her own entryway madame bouclet let all her house-giving on the place in furnished flats or floors and lived up the yard behind in company with monsieur bouclet her husband great at billiards an inherited brewing business several fowls two carts a nephew a little dog in a big kennel a grape-vine a counting-house four horses a married sister with a share in the brewing business the husband and two children of the married sister a parrot a drum performed on by the little boy of the married sister two billeted soldiers a quantity of pigeons a fife played by the nephew in a ravishing manner, several domestics and supernumeraries, a perpetual flavour of coffee and soup, a terrific range of artificial rocks and wooden precipices, at least four feet high, a small fountain, and half a dozen large sunflowers. Now the Englishman, in taking his appartement, or, as one might say on our side of the channel, his set of chambers, had given his name correct to the letter Longley but as he had had a british way of not opening his mouth very wide on foreign soil except at meals the brewery had been able to make nothing of it but long lay so mr the englishman he had become and he remained never saw such a people muttered mr the englishman as he now looked out of the window never did in my life this was true enough for he had never before been out of his own country a right little island a tight little island a bright little island a show-fight little island and full of merit of all sorts but not the whole round world these chaps said mr the englishman to himself as his eye rolled over the place sprinkled with military here and there are no more like soldiers nothing being sufficiently strong for the end of his sentence he left it unended this again from the point of view of his experience was strictly correct for though there was a great agglomeration of soldiers in the town and neighbouring country you might have held a grand review and field-day of them every one and looked in vain among them all for a soldier choking behind his foolish stock or a soldier lamed by his ill-fitting shoes or a soldier deprived of the use of his limbs by straps and buttons or a soldier elaborately forced to be self-helpless in all the small affairs of life a swarm of brisk bright active bustling handy odd, skirmishing fellows able to turn cleverly at anything from a siege to soup from great guns to needles and thread from the broadsword exercise to slicing an onion from making war to making omelettes was all you would have found what a swarm from the great place under the eye of mr the englishman where a few awkward squads from the last conscription were doing the goose-step some members of those squads still as to their bodies in the chrysalis peasant state of blouse and only military butterflies as to their regimentally clothed legs from the great place away outside the fortifications and away for miles along the dusty roads soldiers swarmed all day long upon the grass-grown ramparts of the town practising soldiers trumpeted and bugled all day long down in angles of dry trenches practising soldiers drummed and drummed every forenoon soldiers burst out of the great barracks into the sandy gymnasium ground hard by and flew over the wooden horse and hung on to flying ropes and dangled upside down between parallel bars and shot themselves off wooden platforms splashes sparks coruscations showers of soldiers at every corner of the town hall, every guard house, every gateway, every sentry box, every drawbridge, every reedy ditch and rushy dyke, soldiers, soldiers, soldiers. And the town being pretty well all wall, guard house, gateway, sentry box, drawbridge, reedy ditch and rushy dyke, the town was pretty well all soldiers what would the sleepy old town have been without the soldiers seeing that even with them it had so overslept itself as to have slept its echoes hoarse its defensive bars and locks and bolts and chains all rusty and its ditches stagnant from the days when Vauban engineered it to that perplexing extent that to look at it was like being knocked on the head with it, the stranger becoming stunned and stertorous under the shock of its incomprehensibility, from the days when Vauban made it the express incorporation of every substantive and adjective in the art of military engineering, and not only twisted you into it and twisted you out of it, to the right, to the left, opposite, under here, over there, in the dark, in the dirt, by the gateway, archway, covered way, dry way, wet way, fosse, portcullis, drawbridge, sluice, squat tower, pierce wall, and heavy battery. But likewise, took a fortifying dive under the neighboring country and came to the surface three or four miles off, blowing out incomprehensible mounds and batteries among the quiet crops of chicory and beetroot. From those days to these, the town had been asleep, and dust and rust and must had settled on its drowsy arsenals and magazines, and grass had grown up in its silent streets. End of story fifteen. Part one.